0: To uh, begin here, we're talking about uh, uh, signifiers, and the reason I like that word is things beside words signify, and with conceptual signifieds, you get the impression it's not kind of out there, but it's stuff in your mind. In other words, it enables the introduction of that third category, referent, referent being the thing you're talking about. Because most people think of words and meanings, and they're not thinking of the things you're referring to. I mean, I might just say as an example, very often, problems in a text will be problems of referent rather than meaning. So, for example, take the words of institution. This is my body. What's the referent of this? Everybody knows what this means. It means the thing I'm talking about. Question is, what's the referent? What, where are you looking when you say that? My favorite example of this is in uh, Matthew 18, in the first part of the chapter 1 to 5, where Jesus says, uh, uh, the uh, whoever uh, receives one of these such little children receives me. Now, is he talking about the disciples? Or is he talking about the little child that he's brought into their midst? So these, who's he looking at? Is he looking at the kids or is he looking at the disciples? It's not like if you have the word toyutus, you don't know what it means. It's not going to help you to keep looking in the dictionary. It's a problem of referent at that point. So that referent idea is very critical. Now, <clears throat> we talked about the um, uh, components of meaning and about uh, the things being composite and how we tend to argue about them, and that was that's a very important point. So let's go on to B now in the book, uh, <clears throat> the relationship of words and meaning. And if you'll go to page ninety-one, now this is critical and there was a change between the first edition and later editions. And I want to talk about the change on page 91. B1 toward the bottom. Let me put this up on the camera here. the relationship between words and meanings is a product of convention and is not intrinsic what I had in an earlier version is this statement the relationship between words and meanings is arbitrary that's not really the same thing by a product of convention I mean there's no innate meaning to something but it's not arbitrary in the sense that Tomorrow, I can use computer to mean automobile. By product of convention, we're saying the sociocultural context allows you to come up with a meaning for something. Or to use something with a particular meaning. Now, what is arbitrary, except for onomatopoeia, is the particular signifiers that you use for this to be pen and not nep pen backwards there's nothing inherent in p e n that it ought to have that as its meaning and i can then use that to refer to this object so the product of convention is very critical but that's not the same as it being arbitrary and there's a footnote about that now as an example of the product of convention take a look at this little cartoon that I've got right here from animal crackers and the bird is saying what does ribbit mean and the frog says It can mean a lot of things. It can mean hello or goodbye or what's new or a nice day. Oh, Oh. it's a lot like tweet, tweet. So you basically have the kind of conventionalized nature of these things here. The conceptual signifieds that they're designed to produce is the same, but there's nothing inherent in ribid, as opposed to Tweet Tweet. Now, the really critical thing, and, and by the way, let me just say, this is all part of my general napalm bombing against etymology, All right, against thinking that there's some inherent kind of connection between meanings and words or conceptual signifieds and uh, signifiers. Now we get to the critical stuff on discourse and labeling. So go to page 93. And this is where we start rowing into deep waters. When we use the signifiers in discourse, we apply them as labels, saying that the referent, that's the thing we're talking about, has characteristics which are congruent, with the characteristics of the conceptual signifieds which these signifiers evoke in the memory world. Hence we get this gosh awful diagram. Okay I've got a bunch of uh, uh, markings on there but let me put this up uh, nonetheless. Now I want to talk about this diagram. A whole bunch of you said please explain the diagram. First Note along here, along the bottom, you have sender, signifier set, i.e. the marks on the page, the words understood as signifiers, and receptor. Now, those three, sender, signifier set, receptor, are the things that we had in the introduction in the chart on page 17 so go back to page 17 and you'll see author text and reader so you shoot up page 17's diagram with steroids you get to page 95 now what I'm trying to contend with page 95 is this What happens when a communication takes place? Now, let me try to explain the diagram. For the purposes of this illustration, I am just going to talk about basic descriptive discourse, like saying, I can see Dale through the window. I mean, something like that, a basic descriptor. Now, let's look at the diagram. So I am the sender or the source. The diagram begins in the lower left. Now you go up the arrow. I perceive a referent. This guy in the control room with the glasses on and the shortish haircut. Notice what it says. Referent. Perceived as complex of characteristics it's what i see now nothing's happened yet now a conceptual signified then arises in your mind so look what i have up here a referent is recognized in other words i look over there and i say now who oh yeah see i see the complex of characteristics and then I recognize it. It's seen as congruent with a complex of characteristics evoked from the memory world. I've dealt with them before. Now you get this. You get this when you go to the zoo, and they have rare animals, like a ring tailed lemur or something like that. So you look, you see a set of characteristics. And you're thinking, oh, what, now what, oh, I recognize that. So, you, you get it, so to speak, you, you know what it is. However, there's another step yet. So, that's the conceptual signified. Now the arrow comes down to S. I recognize it and I remember its name. So you may recognize it and say, oh, yeah, that's one of those things that's in the jungles of Sumatra and stuff like that. Is that a, uh, 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 ah, a lemur? Actually, I think they're on Madagascar. But yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah, oh yeah, that's yeah, kind of in Africa, some place. And, and then you recognize uh-huh. that. That is the signifier evoked by the conceptual signified. Now this returns to the sender of source. I want to tell you about this. So I write or say something, which is, I produce a signifier set. Either vocables or marks on a page. It's in a channel. It's got some means by which I convey this to you. There could be problems, like I wrote in pencil and it got smudged. The receptor gets it. What does he get? Now now, now think about this a second. He doesn't receive conceptual signifieds a reference all he receives is a signifier set whether that's through the sounds that hit the ear or the stuff I see on the page that's what you get now what happens now we're on the right side of the diagram the receptor sees the signifier set there's a common linguistic understanding but look when I did the box I did not make the common linguistic understanding encompass both people because there would be slightly, di- you know, different ideas. There, there should be more overlap than there is, but this diagram was drawn by Chuck Aaron on a, the first Mac laptop in his living room, and it was the best we could do, you know. So, so it, this common linguistic understanding should actually go out and encompass more, but it's Close enough for government work. All right, so upon receiving this, conceptual signifieds are kicked off in his mind. Look what I have written there. Evoked by the perceived signifiers. But know how I said perceived signifiers. If the thing is smudged or something, maybe you won't read it right. Now, look. what I did on the diagram <clears throat> there is I put the two conceptual signifieds up close to each other, but I didn't make them the same. The stuff in your mind is not the same as the stuff in my mind, and it could be real close. Now, the last part of the diagram <clears throat> those uh, arrows up to the R's with question marks, referent sought. with congruent complex of characteristics. Now, let me illustrate this. Now, Josh, I'm going to give you this paper, and when I turn around to the board, I want you to shout this out, okay? He's got a gun. Ah. He's got a gun. The signifiers were the sound waves and stuff that I heard, and I... Perceive them as words. A conceptual signified arose in my mind. A male person has a firearm. I turn. I now seek the referent. Who's he talking about and what weapon does he have? See? Now, at this point, when I turn, it's not like I don't know the meaning of he or I don't know the meaning of got or I don't know the meaning of gun I know all those things though I may have to narrow down gun to it could be a rifle or could be a pistol or something like that because it's kinda general but at this point what I'm looking for is the referent of those things so that's why I've got that kind of searched out because sometimes you may not know what the referent is now <clears throat> there's all kinds of places this can go wrong I might actually say the wrong signifier Josh in your paper this is what you said in your summary in the first sentence I finished 4 a before our class met and you elaborated on the assignment I had just split the chapter and for all intensive purposes summarize the entire chapter now you meant for all intents and purposes but you wrote intensive purposes now that's the wrong signifier for your conceptual signified but and by the way I was going to use this as an interesting example of the way context allows me to get a wrong meaning for a right meaning for a wrong signifier. Just because I know he doesn't mean that I have an intensive purpose. So something can go wrong in terms of of the actual signifier set that's produced. Something can go wrong because you can't see it properly. The light's lower. It gets smudged. We might not have a common linguistic understanding. Or I might have the wrong referent for something. Now, in addition, I want you to notice here on the diagram again, uh, up the left side, next to the R, the referent that's perceived, there's a little... Line, a vertical line, and on the other side it says historical world. Now, normally we say that the referent is in the real world. For normal discourse, this is adequate. But you actually have to judge about that little line there as to whether or not the referent is really in the historical world or it is some conceptual world now here's an example the giant spiders okay now the giant spiders. You know what I'm saying. You know what "giant" means, and spiders. And I'm pointing at the wall. All right? So you can understand it. I did not speak in Arabic or something like that. You got the signifier set. You got the conceptual signifies. I had a reference did the referent correspond to the historical world on the other side we call a person psychotic for whom there's something wrong with that line See? now I don't think it would be right to say that the person doesn't have a referent the referent does not correspond with the historical world thus I would like to say, uh, I mean, the, the way I like to put it the best is to say <clears throat> that in actual fact, I mean, your cheap, quick, dirty, and nuclear answer is the referent is in the historical world. But actually, your referent is the, in the perceptual, conceptual world. And you have to make another step. To say whether that's the historical world. Thus, we can write fantasy novels or we can talk about unicorns. See? So, the source of our conceptual signifieds would be the historical world. Parts of a unicorn can be put together from rhinoceroses and all kinds of things. But the actual referent, when I talk about unicorns and knights, would be objects and items and activities in the perceptual conceptual world then you make another move to talk about whether or not that's historical and there's a huge issue with that because if you don't cross that line if it isn't in the historical world then all of a sudden on a large-scale there are different meanings that you're going to be able to get out of a story. Like, like for example, if suddenly I'm telling you something about, um, oh, you know what I just saw? I just saw this in the paper. I should have brought this along. Somebody's written a novel about what things would have been like in the west country of Britain, in Wales, if D-Day had failed and the Nazis had invaded England. Now, you know, there will be this whole world that's constructed, but the referent is not the historical world. Now, what starts to happen then is you cannot, for example, at that point, start drawing historical conclusions. But you can draw, we'll talk about this in Chapter 9, you can draw existential conclusions about how people are, how do people react to situations and so on like that. So you can do different things with the story depending upon whether you're able to cross that line or not. So it's not insignificant. I mean, this has great ramifications of do you think that the resurrection is historical and stuff like that. Okay, go ahead.
1: I have a question about the chart still.
0: Okay, yeah, Um, go ahead, Justin.
1: I'm confused on how you can already know the referent just by the sender.
0: Wouldn't you have to know the uh, <clears throat> No. Wait, what, what do you mean, know the referent by the sender. Who's knowing it? The receiver? See, uh, I'm, I'm describing a process, like if I say to Josh, Justin is asking me a question. I'm referring to you. I recognize you. See, I, so I'm starting the diagram down at the lower left, and I am perceiving a referent, i.e., you.
1: But you've already said the signifier set when you've said the sentence, right? How, how, how can you determine a referent without the signifier set
0: yet? <clears throat> no. Um, here, looking at the diagram, none of this is in existence at this, when I start out. I'm looking at you, I'm seeing you, I'm recognizing you as this person in the class in the front row. Your name, and and by the way, this happens all the time to teachers. You know, I recognize J.B. Let's say, and uh, you know, I can't remember what your real name is because I call you J.B. all the time. Well, see, I can recognize all kinds of stuff, and I may not be able to name it or, you know, give the noun its uh, give the proper noun to describe it. So, uh, assuming I can, the signifier pops into my mind, so to speak. Now, at this point, like I'm covering this up now in the diagram. At this point, now I'm ready to send the signifier set. But this is all in millimicroseconds. Just in, a, you know, like that, right? But all of this is happening here and around before there's any signifier set, so nobody can know anything. Before I start to speak, he has no idea if I'm going to talk about what are the Packers going to do after Brett Favre retires. You know, I mean, he's, he has no idea what the signifier set's going to look like. Okay. Is there another? Yeah. Can I...
1: In terms of the referent being in the historical world, yeah. <clears throat> would a biblical example maybe be the book of Revelation?
0: Yeah. Where it, yeah. Is right.
1: this in the historical world or mm-hmm. is this... A, conceptual narrative
0: and yeah right right um, genesis 1 to 3 i think even stuff like jesus walking on the water you know is is this some some kind of fable or tale or you know and so on like that yeah right I mean there's all kinds of things where if you are taking um even the parables you know Oh, in fact, Michael, I'll give you an excellent example, and this is highly controverted: the parable of the rich man and poor Lazarus. See now, is does that have kind of reference in the historical world, or is it a story like the sower All right, the sore went out to sow, and he scattered seed upon the ground, and the first ra- uh, fell on hard ground. Now, you're you're not at that point. You're not supposed to say something like, "Really? Who was that guy?" You, you know, I mean, you're not thinking, What kind of seeds was he using? So, you, what you're doing is you are actually getting something else out of the story than a historical description of of Itzhak, who lived outside of Haifa, you know, doing something like that. So, yeah, there are a lot of things at stake on on this, and. Um, uh... you know partly i'm not really worried when i do this ultimately about you know a lot of specific passages in the bible this is just my communications model for how it works but it comes up really critically when people start saying things like this and i will be reading to you examples in chapter nine where they say the bible isn't historical but it's like history Okay now I'm going to be contending that once you say that the referent doesn't bear a tight relationship to the historical world you can only get certain kinds of truths out of that text like the story of the Nazis conquering England let's say and you can find out what are English people like and you know and so but you're not going to know anything historical about what actually happens. So, what, I mean, this is, this is the, the quick answer to this. When the wall stays up and the referent isn't really in the historical world, you tend to get existential truths. Whereas, if it does cross, you get existential truths and you get historical truths from it. See? Now, it's, it, it's not true to say, you're raising a profound question here. It's not true to say that if a story is not historical, that there's nothing true about it. That, that, that's, that's a conservative mistake, is to say, well, you know, if it's not historical, then there's no truth. No, no, no. There will be truth, but it'll only be a certain kind of truth that'll come out of it, and it's, it's kind of uh, uh, minimalized, right? Okay, good. Now, there are, uh, there are problems with the business of labeling and discourse because we'll argue whether or not it's appropriate labeling. So you might argue, I know what you mean but I don't know whether calling Justin a traitor is actually correct we both have the same meaning of traitor in mind but whether it's right to put that label on him that's a different issue so in other words lots of times the argument will be whether or not labeling is appropriate this is especially problematical as I said in the book when you have human reaction components look there's a footnote in the chapter that says justice byron wizard white associate justice on the Supreme Court was not correct not correct when he said I'll um, uh, i can not define pornography but I know it when I see it he's absolutely wrong about that you can define pornography the question is whether it's appropriate to label a particular referent as pornographic or not so I I mean pornography can be defined as something like a a pseudo-artistic production which caters to prurient interest and has no redeeming social value you know something like that now the question is does putting a Crucifix in a jar of urine, is that pornographic? Or showing bestiality, is that pornographic? Now, it's not like you're changing the definition of pornography. You're wondering whether it's appropriate to label. And this is particularly bad whenever you have words that have meanings like offensive disgusting. Now, all of those words, you know, it's going to be, does that person react that way? That's what I'm going to have a hard time actually predicting. So it's a labeling issue in that sense. Now, let me hand something out here. There's was an interesting article in the New York Times some time back. Josh, let me have you distribute this. And this occurred back in uh, 2005 when Harriet Myers was being uh, proposed for the Supreme Court. And the question was whether or not people intend to strictly apply the Constitution. Now, let me just say as he's handing this out that essentially the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution and the interpretation of the scriptures are so congruent in so many ways because you have the following characteristics they are old documents recognized as authoritative and interpreted. To control contemporary life. This is why jurisprudence and theology have always had a close connection in the medieval European, uh, uh, the European medieval university system. <clears throat> now, this is a very interesting article in which the guy is trying to uh, argue. A second paragraph over on the left, judges must routinely interpret the law just as umpires must interpret the rules of the game. This is not a sign of activism, but an inherent part of either job. Now, what I, what I want to point out with this sort of interesting example is that the guy sort of explains it but gets it wrong. Now again, I've got to save my voice a little bit, so Josh, I'm going to ask you if you would read the paragraphs starting three decades ago down through below the draw quote.
1: Three decades ago, I was behind the plate in a semi-pro game in which Robin Roberts, a Hall of Fame pitcher, was coaching. Early in the game, Roberts asked me why I wasn't calling strikes when his pitchers threw just below the batter's knees. He used to get these, those calls from the National League umpires. I replied that on this I was a strict constructionist, since, at that time, the rule book defined the strike zone as beginning at the top of the knees, that's what I called. Later in the same game, the other team's manager, who was also acting as a base coach, stopped between innings at the mound, he picked up the ball, handed it to his pitcher, gave him a word of encouragement, and continued to the dugout. Roberts came out and asked whether I was going to count that exchange as a trip to the mound. Managers are permitted only two such trips to the, pitchers, to the same pitcher per inning. I decided that this wasn't a time for strict construction. Surely the rule makers didn't intend to count that kind of interaction as a trip. Again, Roberts nodded in my, at my explanation, and the game continued.
0: Now, in fact, those are two different instances. In the first one, the question is, what does the rule say where is the strike zone is it above the knee or below the knee in the second one we know what a trip to the mound is it is uh, uh, the manager going to the mound and talking to the guy now the question is should that be? so there's not really an argument about what the words mean the question is should you apply it to the thing you saw out there? Was that a trip to the mound when he's just going by? I mean, obviously he stepped on the mound, okay? But is, that, is it right for me to label that procedure a trip to the mound? Now, take, turn the page on the handout. I wrote a letter to the New York Times in response to this. They did not publish it. <laughs> that does not stop me from using it now. Oh, by the way, uh, turn back to the first page. Josh, would you please read that little paragraph on the right side with the starting earlier?
1: Earlier this year, the Supreme Court had decided whether the juvenile death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment. The majority and dissidents use different methods to decide what these words mean. Both had to justify their methods of interpretation. Neither could rely solely on the text of the Eighth Eighth Amendment.
0: Now, notice that he said they had to decide what the words mean. Okay? I am disputing this. Now, let's take a look at the letter. Robert Schwartz exhibits the typical hermeneutical confusion of the legal profession. Legal judgments focus upon one of two things. Namely, interpretation of the wording of the law and interpretation of actions in life relevant to the law these are not the same thing the question of a pitch at the bottom of the knee being a strike is an example of the former the issue of a walk by conversation of manager with pitcher being a mound visit is an example of the latter thus the issue of the death penalty for juveniles is not an issue of what the words of the law mean. We know what cruel, unusual, and punishment mean. It is a question of whether killing a juvenile is cruel and unusual, a judgment on an action in life. So you're judging whether or not if I do X, is that thing going to be cruel? You're not arguing about the meaning of the word cruel. It is amazing to me that the legal profession has consistently not seen this distinction. And in fact, I wrote an article, uh, it's in a theological observer in one of the previous, I should have brought that today, I didn't, uh, editions of the Concordia Journal uh, entitled The Hermeneutical Naivete of the Supreme Court. And it is just these kinds of distinctions, are you arguing about the words or are you arguing about the meanings of the words? Or are you arguing about the applicability of them to a situation in life? Because, I mean, when I say that, what do I mean? I mean whether the characteristics of the conceptual signified actually are congruent with the characteristics of the referent. That's what we mean by whether or not it's an appropriate application. See? And that's exactly what the problem is with cruel and unusual punishment. You know what cruel means. You don't have to be looking that up in a dictionary. The question is, is it cruel to hang a guy? Is it cruel to to have a firing squad? Or is it cruel to have, let's say, lashings, whippings, something like that? Is that unusual? So this is particularly problematic when there is that human reaction component in there because you don't always know how people are going to react. Now, folks, this is why hermeneutics is part of not just interpreting the Bible but interpreting life. You're having an argument in your congregation. Make sure you know what the argument's about. Are you arguing about words, the meaning of words, the meaning of the constitution of your church, the meaning in the Bible, or are you arguing about whether the characteristics of the thing you're applying it to are congruent with the meanings of the words? Those are two different issues. And as long as you don't see the difference, you're going to think you're arguing about the meanings of the words, even as Schwartz did here in this article. Okay, uh, question. Yes. Yes, sir. Dan, w- would that be
1: similar to saying uh, whether you're following the letter of the law or the spirit of the law?
0: No, no, no. That's that's very much the way lawyers go wrong. Um, it is a matter of, uh, you know. By the way, Dan, thanks for bringing that up. I spent some time Sunday in preparation for this class taking a look, and I'd like you guys to take a look at this, because I'm going to be referring to this in the future. I'd like you to take a look at the Wikipedia online, the entry under these two things for constitutional law. So this is Wikipedia. Better get this other one here. It's better. And look up originalism and living constitution. And these are the two theories of constitutional interpretation. I want to go to an original meaning or it's a living document that has to be adjusted to the current circumstance of the world. Both of these entries are excellent they really show you what the issues are that are involved in just these kinds of debates. And, uh, uh, and I, Dan, I think what they show with, with your question is with the spirit of the law, a lot of it has to do with something we had in this chapter. Uh, you had this uh, pretty well outlined in your uh, summary here about the uh, general meanings of words like beast and that that a lot of the constitution is written very generally which y- you start trying to fill in conceptual signifieds and stuff like that characteristics but aside from that uh... whether should we be trying to somehow get back to what the original meaning was or uh, is stuff so different that we gotta make adjustments here and i mean i'll tell you what guys you read these two articles, and they're both very, very well written and very convincing. Um, what, what tends to happen is, if you're looking at originalism, this would be like Antonin Scalia, Scalia. he would be a, a big uh, proponent of that. Um, they will emphasize the importance of the meanings of the signifiers these people will tend to emphasize that a lot of stuff today does not have characteristics in other words characteristics of the reference does not have characteristics in life that are congruent with stuff years ago like if you have patent stuff or that What about all of a sudden electronic things? You know? So all of a sudden there are all kinds of characteristics that you're trying to kind of label, and nobody even had labels that invoked conceptual signifieds that were anywhere close to these things. So they will tend to be on the characteristics of the New World sort of thing. Um, But take a look, because arguments about applicability of the Bible are all congruent with this kind of stuff. Now, we talk about that in depth in chapter 13. <clears throat> but, gal, darn it, most people think there's a Bible mandate to tithe in the Old Testament, and they don't go along and say that we ought to have cities of refuge. See, now, how did that work? So that whole business of what's applicable and what's not all of that is uh, you know just part of this this giant problem of bringing an authoritative community recognized old document into a contemporary situation and making it speak in a living way that that 's The the legal profession and we have the same issue with those two things. Now, uh, just continuing here with my uh, kind of summary before we get to the papers. The uh, the issue of reference being seen in relationship, reference being seen in relationship to one another uh, so that you can actually um, have the same referent, like Judy Velz, wife, daughter of Helene Hayes, sister of Joyce Shum. You're talking about the same person, but you're seeing the referent in relationship to different people. Now, this is the basis of all spy novels that the tennis player. The banker and the Russian mole are all the same guy. You know, so you're talking about the Russian spy, and it turns out to be the same guy. He's got a different relationship seen that way than the tennis pro. So you can have, you can have different signifiers labeling the same referent, different conceptual signifiers coming up, but the reference seen in different relationships. Now, In many ways, the most important part of this chapter, to be honest with you, is as you get toward the end in D, with this larger whole. Page 99. So that the the meaning of the larger whole is more than the sum of the meaning of the parts, but the parts as a whole. Get your Hebrew Bibles. Page two, Genesis one twenty-seven, a a terrifically important text. Yahwivra. Elohim, God created Eth Haadam, the man, Bitsaumo, in his image. But Selim in the image, Elohim, <coughs> of God, he created him. Nice chiasm. God created man in his image, Selim, in the image, Selim of God, he created him. Okay? Notice the Athnak, that little mark under the Otho. That's the halfway dividing point of the verse. Sakar. And nekeva, nekeka, nekeva, male and female, bara. He created them. All right, now, what's the relationship between the last part of the verse and the first half? I'm not arguing about any of the vocables. Is this verse saying? god created man in his image and the image of God consists in them being male and female he created man in his image male and female he created them or is the second half of the verse going on to a new idea god created man in his image in the image of God he created him Furthermore, male and female, he created them. Now, the meaning of the whole is going to be different, and I haven't changed any meanings. Generally, this is what's called syntax. Okay? But as you'll see us argue in chapter 5, there kind of is no such thing as syntax syntax is really all this semantic stuff but signifiers and conceptual signifieds in relationship to each other it's not something different it's meaning but it's relational meaning not just meanings of individual parts at this point all i want to argue is this that the meaning the total meaning of that verse can never be understood simply by adding up the meanings of the individual words. Because you're going to have a whole different idea of the relationship between male and female and the image of God if you take it as repetitive as opposed to taking it as moving on to a new idea. So this is just such a huge thing here. That syntax, I mean, another way to put this is, syntax is never an afterthought. And by the way, this is why, um, if we get off the Mark Wood train to oblivion here, uh, th- this is why nothing can generate into word studies. See, because what you think the image of God means has nothing to do with looking up all the instances of the image of God you're gonna to have to make a decision on this verse as to whether or not the last half is a definition or not And that's got nothing to do with looking up cell now it is interesting that also the individual signifiers receive their meaning from the context now JB I'm coming back to your thing right here when you said intensive purposes I knew you meant intents and purposes okay I did not go around looking up the word intensive you will not find as a definition definition of the word intensive synonym for intense and Okay. But I knew the meaning of the vocable by the meaning of the larger whole. Take a look at this. I found this, I copied this down from the Mansfield, Ohio, News Journal in uh, July of 07 on the front page. Now, mayoral race launches rumors, denials. Buzz has GOP chair backing Indy. He says no. What does Indy mean? Now, if I had just put up the word Indy, I-N-D-Y, lots of you probably would have had no idea what Indy means. In this context, what does it seem to mean? An independent guy running. Exactly. You have no idea of that. By seeing INDY. If you haven't, I had never actually, how many of you have seen this word, INDY, before? Okay, just a few guys. I saw it the other day spelled I N D I E, but that's the only times I have ever actually encountered this word. When I saw it in the Mansfield paper, it's the first time I had ever seen this word. Well, you can kind of figure it out from looking at the context. And that's how, that's how the thing works, that the total context will give you meanings of individual. It's not just building up all the individual meanings in that way. Okay. We're um, about at time here. Um, I'll just say at the very end, because we kind of covered this already, the business of the spiral we've kind of talked about with the whole bootstrapping discussion. So you, you do have to know, for example, in that headline, you do have to know mayoral race and so on like that. you got to know some stuff. Uh, uh, so you can't kind of start with nothing, but the circle is always going to allow you to expand and kind of get better. So it's like, um, uh, it's like a turbocharger on an engine where the faster it goes, the faster it goes, which is different than a supercharger. So with a turbocharger, the, it uses the exhaust to actually feed itself to go faster. That's the way it is. You start out, you're going with your bootstrapping operation, and then the thing gets better and get better as you kind of uh, work more and more. I'm going to go through a number of comments of, on your papers here. Uh, some very interesting things. We have to cover 4B on the relationship between language and thought. And somebody sent me the other day a very interesting paper about how our linguistic structure may not facilitate dealing with quantum. It's a very interesting thing. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow.